Welcome everybody to the Pierce Point Podcast. Today we are going to wrap up Luke 14 and we're going to begin at verse 25. We'll go through 35, 10 verses, but a whole lot is communicated here. Uh, very powerful stuff, including a couple of the comments from the Version Bible. So we're going to jump right in and uh, and then we'll uh, we'll see where this all takes us. So starting at verse 25, what stands out to you, sir? Well, it says it talks about the large crowds that were going along with Christ at this time and uh, he's his his popularity is just blown up. I mean, there were and uh, we read in other areas just a, a couple of chapters back where there was uh, literally tens of thousands of people that were following him and in various places and the crowds would just surge on him and that you know I I think about this as I just as I read this this first verse here verse 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 25 that there were so many people following him and and the 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 majority of those people really had no practical understanding other than what they had been taught by the Jewish leaders they had no practical understanding of what God wanted from them. And I, I thought, man, he had to look at these guys and just say, uh, I, I've got I've to I've gotta get to these people. I've got to be able to tell them exactly what I can do for them. Yeah. And so this is why he's spending some, I mean, thousands and thousands of people every day he's yes. dealing with. Well, I think a piece, of, uh, a piece of context here that's worth noting is that we have clearly made a break from verse 24 to 25. He's had this time where he's giving these parables at this banquet that he's been invited to uh, after, after you know, Sabbath or, or whatever this particular, or after uh, uh, being in the synagogue on Sabbath. Now we have Jesus walking along. We've got large crowds going along with him and he turns and says to them. So making that distinction, we, we don't even have to put our minds in the Pharisee, Sadducee, lawyers, all of that. We don't have to put ourselves into that framework right. again. It's re- just really important to point that out. So these large crowds, as you said, we've got lots of people following Jesus and he says to them, if anyone comes to me, and these are some of the hardest words oh the church has dealt with, um, and yet it doesn't have to be that difficult, and we're, we're actually going to kind of unpack that a little bit today. But he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, before we even get into the tower, before we even get into that, man, this hate language is yeah. just some obscure language here, yes. and it causes problems. It's startling. It's startling to us, and and I I think it may have even been startling to the, these folks in their in their culture in that day. Jesus used the strongest language. That, that he could use to get across a point. So, uh, re, so let, let's just let's just walk through this because first of all, the Bible tells us that we are to love, and and Jesus was about telling us that we needed to to love love him, love the world, and not hate. Yet he used the strongest word to show how great the difference is between the allegiance to him and to everything and everyone else. Yeah, so keep keeping that in mind, we roll through that. I mean, I, I'm seeing this in a comparative sense and not literally hate them. That would Without that doubt. would go against, but but we'll walk 
through that. But that's one piece of it, I think, is that we're, we should see a comparative sense, Absolutely. not a literal sense. So we've all heard pastors say, you know, by hate here, he doesn't mean, you know, you know, the hatred we're talking about. And most people, if, and this is, this should not rile a pastor at all, but the natural question to that kind of very small, cheesy explanation should be, why do you say that hate means something different mm-hmm. than hate? Mm-hmm. How can you prove that hate is just comparative, not literal? Why do you get to make that claim? Because it sounds like you're you're giving us a cop-out. It sounds like you're playing games with that. And so I've had to deal with that yes. a lot. Yes. I've had to deal with that a lot. And so I, I want to take the time and I want to explore that with everybody and show with the whole of God's word, we actually see that he is dealing with comparative things. The first thing that we would point out is that Jesus is not beyond, and neither is the Apostle Paul, neither are the gospel writers, beyond the use of hyperbolic language. This this idea of extreme, even um, exaggeration to make a point, like you just said, it is... It is a harsh language to say in comparison, yes. this is how this works. So that's one. Now, some might say, Nathan, that's still not good enough. I don't like that. Well, I, I know that that's the case. So, so here's where I would have you turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Jesus is going to give the same instruction in Matthew's gospel. And the way we have it rendered, the way we're hearing it here, this isn't the exact same scenario, but the point is still the same. The teaching is the same. That Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, why, why use that language there? Well, for a very important reason. Matthew has a different audience, but the idea here is truly comparison in how do we back that claim up mm-hmm. with the Bible. Yes. Jesus is saying, you cannot love the things of this life, the things of your world more than me. These people hear this and they hear hate and they go, okay, we're listening, Jesus. Yes. We, our ears just went straight yes. up. We, we're listening. And he says, unless this is the case, uh, you cannot be my disciple. This is very clear biblically a comparison and not literal. And Jesus is u- using hyperbolic and very, uh, very grand language, uh, very attention getting language to wake us up. That's, that's what he's doing. So important. And that's so, that's, that's, that's so important for people to hear that and to see that. And the, as you've said, it is, it is the, it's the Bible that's going to show this to be true. If, if you look again at verse 26, they're, they're startled because he says, hey, if he, if he does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, children, brothers, and sisters, and now get this, now get this, and it proves what you've just said. Yes, and even his own life. So wait a minute, Jesus, I'm to hate my own life in comparison to everything else. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. You're to lay, you're to give your life. And, and it is a, this is, this proves exactly what you've just described that we need to, we need to, if we keep reading, if we keep reading and we understand what's being said here, God will, will absolutely show us 
through the through the scripture and through the spirit of God helping us understand as we go. Absolutely. But I completely agree with you. Yes. So we again can appeal further in this idea. Again, I shared with you the whole counsel of God's word. You can say hyperbolic language, Nathan, that's fine. Okay, you're going to quote something out of Matthew. Why didn't they write the same thing? Give me more. Give me more with this. Well, all the way back in Genesis chapter 29, we have this story of Jacob who who goes, uh, he, he loves Rachel, mm-hmm. and he was given... Uh, Leah as well. And the Bible uses this a lot. We actually see this with uh, with Jacob and Esau. This has led to so many obscure doctrines and ideas on what is meant by Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Uh, anybody who's listened to my teaching on Romans will know that that language, that those phrases were given years after uh, Jacob and Esau were dead. It was talking about the people of Edom and not the person of Esau. So it's really important. Yes. But here's what we learn in uh, Genesis chapter 29. It says, so Jacob went into Rachel also. There's a, a relationship going on there, right? And indeed, it says he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Mm-hmm. There are translations, and they're right, renderings that would say, indeed, he loved Rachel and hated Leah. The point is not hatred of Leah. This is language that is used commonly among Jewish people that they understood, and that is Rachel was the one. Yes. Rachel was the one that that Jacob loved. And so verse 31 says, now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved. That term is hated, right? Yes. The Lord saw that that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So interesting, interesting situation here that God actually saw the favoritism of Jacob, and he blesses the one who wasn't loved as much. I I just think that there's an amazing picture here. The point that I'm getting at is it is common for the good Jewish man that Jesus was— as he was a Jewish man, and as he was not the inventor of a new religion, but the fulfillment of an old one. Yes. (laughs) He came as Messiah, the fulfillment of everything they wanted. And all of a sudden, he drops hate love language on them about him. They have the pictures of Jacob and Rachel and Leah in their mind. They have Jacob and Esau in their mind. They also, no doubt, have this way of comparing, like Matthew 10 in their mind, and saying, Jesus just told us if he's not number one, we got a problem. Yes, absolutely. That's the point. That's it's the, just that simple. It, it is. And I... And I I love the fact when he rolls down into verse 27, he says another, which seemingly to to these folks, it probably doesn't startle us as much as it did them. When he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A cross was not what we, what we deem a cross today. We put them up on church buildings as symbols of our Christianity, but that was not what they were. They were a symbol of Roman torture and hatred, and they were the way that that the Romans uh, would use to bring death to those that, that, that they felt like needed death. So the first, the first hearers of this 
did not need an explanation of what a cross was about. And consequently, shame that came with that. If you're Absolutely. a family member of somebody who has been who has been crucified, most likely it was in light of two offenses, insurrection and murder. Yes. And you were ashamed of their actions and the way they died. So we we have our crosses around our necks and hey, I'm not I'm not picking on that. I understand what we think of. We are grateful for the cross that Jesus Absolutely. Or for us. But when Jesus looks at them and says, carry your own cross, he's saying, following me is going to come with a great deal of shame. Yes. So much so that your family is going to oust you. They're going to reject you. Remember, Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Right. He is a Jewish man fulfilling. He is the Messiah. He is fulfilling the promises of that old religion. And when that happens, many people are going to be mad mm-hmm. and you have to be willing to go after him, no matter where that leads, more than making them love yeah, you and like yeah. you. Yeah, I, I, I think it's important, and, and I see this as, as we walk through this, Jesus is talking about he's going to die on a cross, and, and he knows this. But, but what he also knows is that these people knew that for someone to carry their cross was a one-way trip. They didn't come back from carrying yeah. a cross. They didn't come back. This was a laying down of your life. What he's just said, if you don't hate your own life, it was a laying down of a life. It was death in their mind. And Jesus uses this because, number one, he's going to be hung on a cross. And then he says, and and you're going to have to carry your own cross. If you don't, you cannot be my disciple. So all of this is what we commonly talk about in the church as cost language. And we're going to see this in these, mm. in these stories that Jesus tells. There is a cost to following him. Taking up a cross, as you rightly said, is, is the symbol of shame, and you must be willing to do it. And it never ends in a happy story at the end. It is you laying down your life. Absolutely. It is death. The same thing can be read into 26 that says, listen, if you're not willing to be hated by your father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, you can't be my Mm -hmm. disciple. There's a cost associated with this. There's a cost. So we wrap in or we roll into verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down, and here's where we get this idea, calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace because he knows he's going to die, right? Verse 33, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we've got a lot to cover here. Let's just rock into verse 28 first. There's a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost. And, And Jesus is saying here, you need, to, you need to sit down and calculate 
if you can afford to follow me? Are, are you willing to do whatever it takes to follow, follow the Lord? That's, that's what he's saying. So first he's told them to, to put everything, family, uh, uh, to put him ahead of everything, yet even in even their own lives. Yes. And, and, and you start to calculate, okay, he's first in everything, even my own life. And now he says that, I, I, okay, I've not, I need to sit down and calculate, is this something that I can afford to do? Yes. And yes. that's what he's saying. There's, keep in mind again here, we, <laughs> there's thousands of people he's saying this to, and they have to be thinking, oh my, this is not what I expected. Yes, yes. I, I'm not sure what I just signed up for, but wow. So two observations here that I feel are amazing. The first, the first is in something we talked about in the last podcast. We we referenced it. It wasn't a it wasn't present in Luke 14, but we referenced this story of where the people were giving the, the Pharisees were giving their offerings and they would call it Corban. They would say it was dedicated to God. But interestingly enough, I mean, just hear me out here. What is happening is they're saying God is more important than even my own family. And Jesus reprimands them. And then Jesus says, I must be more important than your own family. And we look at that and we go, wait a second. Isn't Jesus like doing the (laughs) the same thing he yells at them for? Isn't he contradicting himself? Here is where a fuller understanding of the gospel comes in. Jesus, by saying, uh, I want to be first, would go on then and show us what our relationship to the world should be like. And that is when we make him first, we love them better. Absolutely. So if we will put him first, this is more uh, just, these are more chinks in the armor of this bad interpretation that hate means hate. What he's saying here is if you make me first, here's the kingdom I'm calling you to. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You're going to love your family better if you love me first. The problem with the Pharisees is that they loved, they supposedly loved God, but make sure you realize what Jesus was getting at. They actually loved themselves and didn't love God nor people. Right. They didn't love either. They had broken both of the key commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They'd broken them both. They were all about their religious practice that got them some reward. Jesus comes and says almost the same thing, says, I must be first. But the way he turns the kingdom upside down for us is he says, in loving me, in being a disciple of mine, you're going to learn to love even those who hate you. Yes. And so that is a, a powerful, powerful thing. It almost seems like Jesus would do the, uh, is doing the opposite uh, or doing the same thing that he ridicules yes. people for yes. earlier, but he's not. The second yes. observation that's really important is back to some, a phrase that I use a lot, and that is our fundamental misunderstanding of grace. Do you notice, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. That's absolutely true. Yes. But do you notice the Bible talks over and over about cost language? 
It says sell all that you have and buy that pearl of great price. It says give it all up. Put your mother and father and everything second and make Jesus first. And we talk about cost language all the time because we don't understand the the, the parallels or the, the harmony that happens mm-hmm. inside of grace and repentance. God, yes, has saved us by grace, but here's how you understand it. He chose to save or redeem his creation. That's an act of his grace. What could he have done rightly in his justice? He could have killed us all, right? I mean, that sounds fun, but you know, he could have (laughs) killed us all, but his grace is that he didn't. Mm -hmm. He overlooked our sin. Mm -hmm. He came, he, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So when you put that there, you see what the grace element of this is. But here's what he says in that grace. He says, I've come to redeem you. By the way, you're rebels against a holy God. I've come to redeem you. Turn around mm-hmm. and come and follow mm-hmm. me. Yes. Turn around and come and follow me. There's a cost. You can't live it your own way anymore. You can't walk your own way. That does not earn the grace. That grace started before you yes, ever turned. Absolutely. That offer was made to woo you into turning. Remember the parable from yesterday that talked about going and persuading people to come in to the wedding banquet or to come into the feast. God's grace is a persuasion. It's a beautiful persuasion. So I I just want those two things to be pointed out. It is really important. Jesus is not doing what he yells at the Pharisees for doing. He's painting a bigger picture of his kingdom. And number two, uh, Jesus here is, is doing something powerful. He's saying grace and cost don't counteract each other. Right. Absolutely. Very important. Very important stuff. And I, I think when we, when we look at the concept of counting the cost, and it's important, it's important for us to understand that, that there is this cost. But my, the cost on the, on the opposite side, the cost of not following Jesus, it's much greater. Oh, yes. The, that, that cost, sure, it costs something to be a, a, a follower of Christ, but it costs even more to reject him. And, and we, if we don't understand that Jesus is giving us mercy and grace and extending it, he's saying, if you put me first, I, I will help you get everything else in its proper order. Amen. Everything else will, will, will get in its proper order if you will, will follow me. And he's showing them through these examples that, that there is a proper order. Yes. And some people fight against that. Some people don't want, they say, oh, oh my gosh, that that cost is too high. No, the cost to reject is far too high. It's far too high. And it's masterfully put. And he illustrates that point that you just made by saying it goes beyond verse 28 and 29 of the ridicule of not being able to finish your tower, mm-hmm. right? That's a pretty serious cost. You look like a fool before your friends, but in the in the meeting of two kings in battle, oh, yeah. the, the, the actual cost is you die. You die. It's either go for terms of peace. That is, remember that delegation mm-hmm. is please, please, please. Let me let me have peace with you. Otherwise, you die. So, like you said, sure, there is a cost. There is an important cost, and to this world, it's a steep cost to follow Jesus. But the greater cost is to not follow Him. Mm-hmm. 
it is a judgment that you don't want to experience. So Sarah Frankhauser chimed in on this. That's my wife. She had chimed in on um, on day uh, 14 of the reading plan, and she said, a good question to ask ourselves is, what am I still clinging to? What must I let go uh, if that's holding me back from being a more devoted follower? Then she chimes in with this. She said, just as Nathan and Barney have been talking about on Sundays, I think this parable Jesus gives of the Great Supper speaks to devotion, rightly so, right? And then she asks the question, which I believe is connected with her previous question. She says, how devoted are we really? And that first question yet again was, what must I let go of that's holding me back from being a more devoted follower? We have to ask the question that says, are we are we not weighing the cost? Are we holding on to the priorities yeah. of our life and Jesus is not that priority? Mm-hmm. And that those are powerful questions because we need to look and say, what is keeping us from from resting in his presence, in, in, in his way. You know, it's really hard. Yeah. We what have are, a lot of things. What are we putting in front of Christ? And that's a, my goodness, that's a, that's a sobering question. And uh, I, the, the, the story of the king, I mean, this, this situation demands that, that, that something be done here, that, that you, that you do something. If he, uh, if, if he realizes that this is, that he's going to get killed he best start figuring out how to do that. The one that he needs to make peace, he asks for terms of peace. That's that, that's what we need to do. God has offered us terms to make peace here. He is he's yes. offered us that. And if we don't take that, then then well, it won't go well with us. Without doubt, I, I like the the um, this kind of geekiness. But in the in the language in the Greek here, this idea of estimate the cost or count the cost. These are terms that were used. um, They used them in one sense, if my memory is serving me well, they used them in one sense for counting votes, um, which would, of course, that would seem to be a a Roman thing, Mm -hmm, or that mm -hmm. would seem to be a Greco-Roman thing. Um, But on the other hand, this is the same idea as adding up the... the, um, the numbers in a ledger. So, so you're adding it up, literally counting the cost, like you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're tallying this all up. And the reason I point that out is because this is something, Jesus is okay. <laughs> it's hard for people to understand, especially in our easy believism or instant decisionism uh, culture of Christianity. Jesus actually says, I want you to write mm-hmm. down the cost. I want you to add it up. I want you to think about it. I want you to weigh this in your heart. Now, we would say, but Nathan, that seems to contradict with this idea that says, you know, right now is forever. You don't have tomorrow. It's not promised to you. What about that? Maybe maybe there's no tomorrow. Sure, those are true. We're not promised that. I, I, I don't see a promise for many years to come. But what I am seeing is that Jesus still says, you need to think about what you're about to do. You need mm-hmm. to think about what you're about to do, because if you're not willing to go all the way, you're going to look like a fool or you're going to die because you're not there. You're not with uh, Jesus. And so that actually puts it, that that's important for me because mm-hmm. it puts it into a really interesting framework when we're sharing the gospel with people. Peter would tell us that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our heart, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that we have. 
Um, when, when Paul does this, as we see him do in so many occasions throughout the book of Acts, when Paul does this, it talks about him reasoning with the Jews week after week after week. Yes. You, you don't see... Uh, you don't see the kind of Billy Graham model, nothing against Billy Graham. You don't see anything of the Billy Graham model in the pages of scripture that says, okay, what's your response? Fill out this card and, and accept Jesus. What you see rather, you may see instantaneous decisions. You see 3,000 get saved on the day of Pentecost or, or the Ethiopian eunuch who says, there's water, what prevents me from being baptized? Sure, you see instantaneous decisions. But you don't see a demand it be made now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Instead, what you seem to see throughout the scripture is this idea that says, I'm actually here to convince you from the scripture. Mm -hmm. And you need to weigh that cost. You need to assess what is right and what's wrong. The Bereans were a people known for this kind of studious approach. They say, we want to hear you again on this matter. Yes. You you come back. We we need to we need to think about what you're about to say. I'm looking at this, at this from the lens of a pastor sharing the gospel with people, loving people, watch watching people come in even to a church and hearing the gospel for the first time and thinking Am I upset if they don't make a decision that day? Have I done a poor job? The answer is maybe they've gone home to consider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that's biblical. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. So. I love the idea that you that you brought out of having a having a a a uh, ledger and counting the cost, counting it up because you've got two ledgers, you've got the one okay, it's going to cost something to follow. But the cost to not follow is something that you need to tally up as well, and uh, and and Jesus is giving all the things to put on that sheet that says, well, if you don't follow me, then there's a cost to that as yeah. well. So yeah. tally it up. That's that actually is really powerful because if we're not careful, we we only look at this is what it's going to cost us to follow Jesus, but. We ought to look at what it's going to cost yes. us not to follow him, oh ridicule yeah. and death and yeah. all of those uh, matters. So it's powerful. I think all of this is yet again back to uh, a parable that we, we talked a lot about a few weeks ago, which is the parable of the soils. We bring this up a lot because it is really just like the parable of the Good Samaritan, just like the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll talk about in, in tomorrow's podcast um, or the next day's podcast, the, the idea... Uh, is that we come across these parables that really speak to us. And the parable of the soils is really, really impactful because what we have is on rocky and thorny soil, we basically have two types of people who don't fully weigh the cost. Yes, yes. And so they, they receive the gospel gladly, but then the cares of life choke it out and they go, uh, I'm not willing to pay that cost and they put it down. Or or t- a persecution comes and they go, I can't take this kind of ridicule. I can't take this kind of thing. I have to just walk away from Jesus. And what they haven't done is looked at that ledger again and said, wait, the cost to not press forward is eternity. Yes. That's scary. That's it's, scary. It's, it's scary. And it's it's important for us to to talk about that. And it's important for folks to 
consider that. Yes. So let's jump down to 33 through 35, because I do believe we could, uh, well, we could talk a lot about these yes, three yes. verses. But so 33 says, so then no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Okay, Jesus is calling for socialism. That's what he's calling for. Just get on board. No. Okay, here's the first uh, logical reason why that's not the case. Um, It was a political theory that didn't exist in his day. So why would he call for something out of context? It wasn't the case. The idea here is you must be willing to lay it all down. Yes. It must be second. We've said this over and over today, but it must be second to him. To read it any other way, and I, I, I cannot say this with enough firmness and with, uh, well, I could say it more aggressively, but I can't say <laughs> it more firm, and that is Jesus is not advocating for some ridiculous idea you've read into the text. Jesus is saying he must be first and everything else must come second. Absolutely. You can't, you can't go grabbing your weird philosophies and jamming them in there. Jesus wasn't thinking those things, so we move forward. Um, I look at that and, and I'm haunted again by Sarah's question, which is, what is it? What am I? Is there something I'm holding yes, back? Yes, yes. I want to know that. Yes. Part of the some of the translations, uh, they, they talk about forsaking all that you have. And this this ancient Greek idea of forsaking it was to was to say goodbye to it. Yeah. And entrust that to the Lord. So it was so Jesus told us to, hey, forsake forsake all that you have. Turn that over to me and we'll get it in its proper order. Yes. We'll get things in its proper yes. order. So so uh, I'm completely with you. This selling all you think all all your things that is that our 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 world cannot be read into their world, nor nor vice versa. Most of the time, right, sometimes absolutely. you can take the the truths that are there and read. Well, isn't in our that world. I mean, isn't that the great the great attempt or the great challenge of biblical study is to cross this great chasm. We we hear what's happening in their town. This is how one. Um, one biblical uh, interpretation method goes that you read what happened in their town and what is across from their town, across a great river that is cultural context, that is society, that, you know, that is, that is all kinds of time gaps, everything that is there, that's the width of the river. And then you have our town, we have our day today. The great goal of biblical interpretation is how do we cross that chasm? How do we go from their town to our town? The problem that I see that's happening in so much biblical interpretation today is actually going from our town back to theirs. Yes. Quit yes. doing that. Yes. <laughs> you, yeah. you, you can't go back to the yeah. first century. You may learn from the first century, but when you force your town into theirs, you get some whacked out ideas here, yes, right? Just absolutely. like we would say, a political theory that didn't exist. Instead, what we have to do is we have to we have to attempt to take their town, cross the chasm of cultural understandings and all of these other things, and come to our town with principles. Yes. What do those principles mean to us? What does it mean to give up my everything to follow Jesus now? Well, that's a conversation that could go for hours. Yes, What absolutely. does it mean? Does, does Jesus say you can't work for the company you're working for now? Well, does your company do something 
specifically sinful, then most likely he's not telling you to walk away from your job. Um, are your are your family members following Jesus? Most likely he's not telling you to leave them. Right. Right. It's it's we ha- we apply the principle that we found in their town, crossed over the cultural divide, and we apply the principle in our day to day. So it's really important. It's extremely important. I think Tina and I talked about this just in the last couple of nights. We, I, I uh, she and I talked about the fact that. While we have the luxury of being able to be in our world and looking back and can see, and we have, we have the accounts of all of the things that these folks did. Now, granted, many of those things make no sense to us if we don't understand their language yes. or their culture, many of them. But on the, on the other side, they did not have the ability to see into the future necessarily. They could not see. They couldn't have put something that they said and said, this is going to apply to 2020. There was no way that was ever in their mind. They could not have ever seen into the future. But we have a distinct ability to look back and say, okay, we know if we, if we know, and we know by, by being trained to know and to understand culture, language, and those things, and then we know what their world was like, or we should. If we don't, we're not studying the Bible correctly. But, but, but they didn't have the ability to, to look forward and see what it was going to sound like right, to us. Right. So we have a distinct advantage. We need to use those advantages. We have far more ways. This is something that's, that is so important, I think. And, I, and then I'll get off my soapbox. But what, what you have said many times is that if we if we don't understand the theory of context and the and and all of the things that make that up and all of the things of with us trying to read different worlds different spans of time different cultures different languages different practices into our world if we don't don't understand that we're doing that we're not we're not going to understand much of what's being said no, no. and and we run the risk of actually missing the point entirely yes. and that's where it's dangerous i think i think you have um well i know this but you you have a book that is written to us for our joy, for our correction, rebuking, training in righteousness, to fully equip the man of God, the woman of God for mm-hmm. his work. All of that is why the scriptures were inspired and given to us. And when we miss it, we actually shortchange ourselves. We get, we allow our biases to take over. We miss the point completely. And sadly, it just, it, it creates in us, um, it creates in us an immaturity, yes. and that's the real fear here. Yes. So, with this idea of um, of saying goodbye, right? You 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 pointed out the idea of giving up, which was a saying farewell to. And I wanted to jump back to that point. You remember back in Luke nine, we had talked about Jesus said said some obscure things like he always does, right? Foxes have holes and birds yes. of the air yes. have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That person responds, uh, that person had said, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, well, just so you know, it ain't going to be pretty if you do. But he was, he was inviting him to another person. Jesus says, follow me. And we don't see this as a 
only through a negative lens. We actually see this as a very positive thing if you read it right. He says, follow me. And the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he says to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. He didn't say leave your dad in his, you know, in that funeral, even though the dad hadn't died. That wasn't the point of this. The point was, you go, you tell them the gospel. But this last one was really important for what we just talked about. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those mm-hmm. at home. And Jesus says to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is cost language. It's the same yes. idea over and over. And so what he's saying here is by give up. I mean, you have to be willing to not look back. Yes, absolutely. You have to give up. You, you literally have to say goodbye. And you might look at that and say, but that's what the guy was asking to do. He wanted to say, he wanted to say goodbye. Jesus had already called him to follow him. Absolutely right. You at that point, your your call in your life is that you have said goodbye. So how do I marry these together? That man needed to weigh the cost. Before he followed Jesus, because the temptation is to turn back, to to take your hand off the plow. Jesus here would say the same thing. Listen, know the cost, know the cost, because unless you're willing to give it all up, you can't be my disciple. You can't follow after me. So So then verse 34, therefore, salt is good. Yes, it is. I love it. Uh, It's really good. (laughs) Too much, too much. But yes, salt is good. And if salt has become tasteless... With what will it be salt salted? I love I love yeah. that or seasoned. You don't salt your salt. Yeah. Just so you know, like, I <laughs> well, know people I have done who that do. <laughs> yes, you included. Yeah. You know, I know people who salt uh, before they ever taste. Yes. You're salting your salt. That would be it's me. really bad. Okay, verse thirty-five. It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Any yeah. thoughts on those salt? Perspective. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I love this. I I love the idea that, that salt in their day was an extremely extremely valuable substance, and Jesus used something that was valuable, something that they knew about, uh, to teach them something that they didn't necessarily know about. Salt was used to preserve. It was used for a lot of things. It was used to to season things as as we use it for. Uh, uh, but if it was no good, if it had become wet or l- lost its salt, they would throw it out, and they would throw it, and it was they would put it out on the road. It would become a walking path or a, or a road or whatever. So, it, 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 but but the salt, I, this is kind of uh, going through this. It seems to me that the loss of saltiness occurs in our failure when we don't take up our cross when we don't. Turn, uh, uh, say goodbye to everything and turn it all over to Christ. Yes. When we don't put him in his rightful place and let him put everything else in the right order, we start to lose our saltiness. That's then. absolutely the case. And we're the salt of the earth, we're the Jesus salt of the earth. would say. And so to lose that saltiness is a really interesting thing. Now, for all my friends out there that struggle with this, this language of losing something, make sure you, you wrestle with that. Jesus yeah. says you can lose your saltiness. There's there's power yes. in that statement, and it's not something you get to play around with. Now, uh, this is going to be an obscure uh, thing that makes it sound like I'm going off subject completely, but I love this parallel. Uh, number one, uh, in the Old Testament, there is a term that is used in the 
the Hebrew language for the assembly of the saints. It talks over and over throughout the Old Testament of the assembly, the assembly, the assembly. That word, when it's transliterated into the Greek, that word becomes a a word that we're very used to, and that is the word church, Mm. okay? Mm -hmm. Church, the assembly, the church. However, there are these weird places in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, when it harkens back to the people of Israel, and remember, it's recounting the story of the people of Israel, but it's doing so in Greek language. And curious to me is the fact that the translators, when it talks about Israel, they randomly change the meaning that is church to assembly again. Hmm. Okay? All throughout the whole New Testament, it's the same word. Every time it should be translated church. And why I think it should be translated is because it helps with the meaning. It helps show us the church in the wilderness, the church now. We've not replaced Israel. That's not what I'm getting at. Mm. What I am saying, however, is we have become that assembly that God has called and we need to walk after him, okay? Interestingly enough, the same thing has happened here. When it says, when it says, therefore, salt is good, But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? That phrase, to become, uh, loses its saltiness or to become tasteless, is translated everywhere in the the New Testament under a completely different thing. Mm. It actually renders the same words, same exact words. We read salt, tasteless, becomes tasteless. It's translated everywhere else, to become foolish. Oh, wow. Wow. So think about this. Now, we look at salt, and we we want to say it's become tasteless. Duh, it's salt, right? But he's comparing this to people, right? We've lost our saltiness. We have lost the light that we shine. We're not being preservers, or we're not being flavor enhancers in the day. And Jesus says, here's what happens when you're not doing it. You've become a fool. Yes. And the Bible repeats over and over that the fool perishes. Read all of Proverbs. You'll see it. It's a dangerous thing to become foolish. And so this phrase is just like that word assembly that is church in the New Testament. Everywhere in the New Testament, it's translated, have become foolish. And the translators here just say, "Eh, it's become tasteless. I get why. Isn't that that amazing, though? Yes. That's a a powerful understanding. That's where the the understanding of the language is vitally important. Yes. And, you know, we... If we don't do that, we are not doing our, we're doing ourselves a, a, a disservice in understanding God's word. But I love the, I love the correlation to salt. Uh, I love, you know, uh, if you go to the physical, salt's only useful when it has the yeah. nature of salt, when it does what salt does. And a Christian is only useful when they have the nature of Christ, wow. when they do what Christ has told them to do. So that is... If That's we, a fantastic statement. If we just if we understand that, if we understand what Jesus is saying here, and that we have we truly have become foolish if we don't do what He's told us to yes. do. Yes, yes. You so remember, good. you remember back again. I hearken back to the the soils, the parable of the soils. Jesus says the same thing here that He ends that parable with. Back then, remember He says yeah. He says He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's obviously not asking that only the people who literally still have ears left 
uh, can hear, yes. right? The idea is if you have a humble heart in which you can listen to what I'm saying, mm-hmm. then you need to listen, yeah. right? So uh, it is also really graphic. The scripture is filled with this graphic language, but, you know, the, the fool is actually only useful for one thing. That's to be thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. That's thrown out into outer darkness yeah. to be cast into this concept, this this hell, this very real thing, uh, into the manure pile. It is not useful. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that we ought to concern ourselves with, I think all the days of our life, is being useful to the king. Yeah. Yeah. We're his. Oh uh, our desire should be to be of use to him no matter what. What a pity. We all want to hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. But I assure you, nobody wants to hear, get out, you are useless. You are worthless. And and if we are not, you put it perfectly, if we are not doing what a Christian should be doing, salting things up, Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't mean be salty, church. Anyway, so I'm just, (laughs) you know what I mean by that phrase there. But what I'm saying is that if we're not doing the things Christians do. Yeah. What a danger. We're, we're foolish and we're useless. Absolutely. Okay, guys, that, this has been a great podcast. We are, uh, we are glad that you guys have plugged away with us this long. We're going to keep firing away through chapter 15 and through the end of the Gospel of Luke, and then we get to jump right into the book of Acts. But based on the reading plan, since we're, um, since we're a bit uh, behind in our reading plan, uh, we will probably get to Luke after we start another reading plan. (laughs) But the point still remains, we're going to jump into that, and we hope that you're encouraged by this. We want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear your points of agreement, points of disagreement. Send us an email, nathanfrankhauser at gmail.com, barneyestes at yahoo.com, piercepointchurch at gmail.com, or you can comment on the Facebook thread or on our SoundCloud account. We want to hear from you. We want you to continue to engage with us. And if you're a part of that version thread, uh, kind of share your thoughts each, uh, each day of the reading plan in, uh, in our Think It Over section or Talk It Over section because we're using a lot of those comments. So God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.